Tonight on the Virtual Bible Study, we want to talk about so-called heresies among American evangelicals. Yeah, we're going to have to define our terms before we even get started, but what about that? Heresies and evangelicals. Wow, let's talk about that. We're going to talk about it, and we're going to get started right now. It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, Internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 931- one three eight one four five six seven or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com we hope you'll take out your bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of god's word on this edition of the virtual bible study and we welcome you to the virtual bible study this is the virtual bible study for thursday october 27th 2022 thanks for joining us on the program tonight my name is jacob gwynn my father greg gwynn is here hello dad jacob great to be with you good to be with you kyle barnes is behind the controls kyle welcome it's good to be here and uh, we're glad that you're listening on the other end of the line tonight. We hope that we hear from you on the other end of the line tonight at 931-381-4567. You can email questions at collegeview.com, and you can sign in the chat window with other listeners tonight. Brian's out in California. Dwight and Michelle are out in Iowa. Jeff is in the chat room tonight. You can sign in and share your comments with us uh, via the chat window tonight. We'd love to hear from you on the program. All right. All right. So we found today, I thought this was kind of interesting, Jacob. In a publication that I, different people reference this to me from time to time. Very often a a good friend, Randy Black, out in Colorado will send me a, a link. But he sent this link, actually, to an article in a publication known as Christianity Today, pretty well known. And the article was entitled... Top five heresies among American evangelicals. Mm-hmm. I thought that well, that that caught my that caught my attention. I thought, what, what what would they be talking about? But the first thing that I had to to make sure I understood was this this designation evangelical. You know that gets thrown around a lot, but it's actually not a very well defined terminology. Uh, are you an evangelical? By the way, I should be. Uh, well, maybe, yeah. Uh, so, actually, this article does give a working definition of what an evangelical is. And by the way, I sent that out as one of the questions to our update list earlier today. And I referenced this article on Christianity Today uh, about these five heresies. What, what does the Bible say about these? Are they heresies or are they not? But my first question to our update list was, how do you define evangelicals? Now, this this survey that, that the article references is called the, the Yearly State of Theology Survey, publicized by uh, Lifeway Research. I think that's not fit here in Middle Tennessee, up in Nashville, I think. Connected with the Baptists, yeah. Southern Baptists, yeah. But anyway, here's what they said. Respondents were considered evangelical if... By belief, they strongly agreed in the Bible as the highest authority, the importance of encouraging non-Christians to trust Jesus as their Savior, that Jesus' death removed the penalty of sin, and that trust in him alone brings salvation. Mm. So they said there's a four-part definition. Now, 
I actually think that I could probably agree with that definition if you let me explain my terms. Mm -hmm. For instance, Jesus' death removed the penalty of sin for those who take advantage of it. You know, I would add that caveat. I mean, it's possible that you can avoid the penalty of sin through the death of Jesus, but only if you comply with the conditions in order to accomplish that. So, I mean, I'd want to categorize that. And then trust in him alone brings salvation. Acts 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no other name. So, yeah, we have to trust in Jesus. But, again, I want to define what that means to trust in Jesus. But I could go along with that. And if that being the case, then I suppose we would identify ourselves as evangelicals. There apparently is a distinction between an evangelical and a fundamentalist. And I'm not sure I totally understand that demarcation. I assume that when they sort of cast off on fundamentalism, they're accusing those who believe the Bible literally and, you know, explicitly more. I think they would probably equate that more with the idea of legalism. And we've talked about that before. Well, we ought to just be as Christians and followers of the Bible. That would make us evangelistic, maybe not evangelical. Kent says the term evangelical refers to a general religious system within the scope of Protestantism. While there is general agreement with fundamentalism, those of the evangelical movement would not be as conservative in their views as those identified with fundamentalism. During the last 50 years, evangelicalism has had division in its own ranks where some have compromised their formerly held views, especially as it relates to the inspiration of the Bible and the relationship of Christ to deity. Generally, most evangelicals would advocate a faith-only system of salvation. They would have a broader view of religious fellowship than fundamentalists, including modernists and postmodernists, as well as Roman Catholics, whereas the fundamentalists, along with the more conservative evangelicals, would oppose such. I think that really, I think Kent has pretty well nailed that, not only defining evangelicalism, but also the difference between that and fundamentalism. A fundamentalist, as he says, would typically be more conservative, especially in regards to their view of the inspiration of the Scripture. All right. Okay. So that was our first question that we put out today, and hopefully we've kind of got that settled in everybody's mind. It didn't take very long to do that. But, again, by the way, that definition that I read was adopted by the National Association of Evangelicals, but that definition was just adopted in 2015. So I think maybe that term's been around longer than that, but I think it's just kind of a wishy-washy mishmash of ideas or theologies. But let me read that again. An evangelical would agree, strongly agree, that the Bible is the highest authority, the importance of encouraging non-Christians to trust Jesus as their Savior, that Jesus' death removed the penalty of sin, and that trust in him alone brings salvation. That's the four-part definition of evangelical as adopted by the National Association of Evangelicals in 2015. Okay. Okay. So, again, you would think with that definition that those people would be relatively conservative in their views, but what we find out is that they are not. All right. And that's what this article is principally about. 
the top five heresies among American evangelicals. Again, it comes from a survey by Lifeway Research called the Annual State of Theology Survey. So let's just let's just dive into this. We got five of these, and we put them out to our update list earlier today. What do you think? Are they heresies or not? Do you agree or disagree? Why or why not? Uh, by the way, we always try to remind people of this because we'd love to build our mailing list. If you're not getting our weekly updates for the virtual Bible study, send us an email to questions at collegeview.com and just say, add me to the list, and we will do that. You'll get our updates on Thursday. We also send out our church Sunday bulletin in an email format on Tuesdays, typically. So you get two emails from us uh, every week, and, and uh, uh, hope that they are useful to you. One thing we're going to see with these five things that are categorized as heresies, that they are not grounded in Scripture. And I think one maybe closely associated thing we would put with this idea of an evangelical is the idea of the social gospel, where we're interested more in, in the, the whole man. And the social, you know, yeah. and the and the physical, not so much really about hardcore spiritual things. Where yeah. We're really getting down and digging in deep. And all of these, well, with the exception of the last one, are very easily shown from the scriptures to be false. But it isn't a priority, sadly, with many people in the religious world today to really care too much about the Bible. We're more concerned about our relationship with fellow man than we are with our relationship with God and understanding his work. I think you're right. And I think when, as we go through this list, we'll find out that, as you said, you don't have to dive very deep into the Bible no. to prove that these things are not true. Right. And so you would think that that would, would sort of brand the evangelical movement as superficial, right. not deeply Bible-based. And if we're not careful, and if we follow down those roads of being more concerned with the social and with the entertainment and the... Sort of an embracing of the like broad a, circle, like a social club. Yeah, if we're not if we're not grounded in the scriptures, and if that's not our focus, then we easily drift away, as we see these folks are doing here. I think that's a really good point because they people would not have typically been at this point fifty years ago. Most of the people surveyed back, well, people of that uh, many people from fifty years ago probably not around to be surveyed now, but fifty years ago. People who were sort of in that genre of religion would not have believed the things that this survey points well, out. Well, it's, it's easy to see how. Look, pull up a worship service, watch a worship service of uh, some group that claims to be evangelical. What will it look like? Well, it's not going to look like a traditional church service. Yeah. It's going to look more like a concert. There's going to be lights, uh, and and, and uh, the preacher's going to get up in a pair of jeans and a T-shirt, and he's going to tell funny stories with not a lot of Scripture and then the rock band's going to kick back in and, and play you uh, play you yeah. along, and everything's going to be good. Go home and and, and you're really going to feel about. you're going to feel good about yourself when you get done. But it's not. Hey, let's read the scriptures. Let's get in. Let's see what what God has to say. I don't really care about that. Yeah, yeah. they want to garner your emotion. They really want you to be emotionally stimulated, either excited or just you're just if you want to. They want you to feel that when you leave, that you've experienced something today so yeah. it's an emotional so experience. like if you haven't experienced something then you haven't worshiped that's yeah, basically yeah. how they feel i think you're right kyle i think you're exactly right and so the, the 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 soil is is fertile for false doctrine and those seeds of false doctrine be planted and take root yeah i think you're exactly right let's dive into these these let's talk about these five heresies and they're really pretty surprising jacob the things that 
So first off, the first heresy identified in this survey, and remember these authors for Christianity Today are the ones who are calling these heresies. That's not our label. That's what they called them. But we would agree this is heretical. Jesus isn't the only way to God. More than half, in fact, 56% of evangelical respondents affirmed that, quote, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And that's an actual increase. It, it's, it, this year, 56% of respondents said God accepts all worship, Judaism, Islam, Christianity. That's up from 42% just two years ago. So that, that's an idea that is really gaining steam. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's uh, 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 an idea that's really popular. But as you said, Jacob, that's pretty easily answered, right? Yeah, I, I, I could go to one verse and go ahead. knock that one out. Well, it's the same one that Kent mentioned in uh, John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Uh, okay, how much plainer can you make that? Yeah. I mean, how, uh, no one comes to the Father but by me. Okay, what about the Jews? The Jews don't believe that Jesus is the only begotten Son to God. They're not going to try to approach God through Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus. Jesus said he's the only way to the Father. The Jews don't believe Jesus. But these evangelicals, a majority of evangelicals are saying, yeah, you can come to God by the Jewish religion. What about Islam? Islam doesn't believe that Jesus is the divine Son of God either. They the, the Islamists would say that Jesus was a prophet, not not even the greatest prophet. Muhammad was the last and greatest prophet. Jesus was a prophet, but not the greatest of all prophets. He was not the divine son of God. Jesus said, no man comes to the Father but by me. I mean, how can you hold that view and know anything at all about Scripture or believe anything at all about Jesus? And how could the apostles have had it so wrong because they lost their lives teaching that gospel in Acts 4, verse 11. This is the stone would talk about Jesus, which is set at not of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, verse 12, for there's none other name given under, under heaven among men, whereby we must be saved. The apostles were going to die for that message right there. And they were talking to Jews, by the way. Yeah. And why would they say that if the evangelical is right and then Jesus isn't the only way to God? Why put your neck on the line? Yeah. Why would you even try to convert a Jew if that's the case? But that's in the early days of the church, those were the only ones they were converting. The kingdom really didn't go to the Gentiles until sometime later, beginning in Acts 10. Uh, Jesus, here's another quote from Jesus, John 8, 24. I said, therefore, unto you that you shall die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Pretty exclusive. Yeah. Yeah, and not very milly-mouthed, not uh, dancing around the issue. It says what it means, that Jesus is the only way. You know, that, this, this idea that you, again, let me quote this, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 56% of American evangelicals believe that. That's a huge step toward what we would identify as universalism, Jacob. Yep. You know, God's, God's open to anything and everything. You know, and it sort of stands to reason. We get back to what Kyle was mentioning about the experiences, and it's about me. It's all about what I want, what I like. People have a tendency to sort of like being open-minded, 
and accepting. That was the problem in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There was sin there. And instead of condemning the sin and purging the sinner out, they were accepting the sinner. And verse 2 says, you're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he had done this deed might be taken away from among you. There was this sort of this pride that went along with, we can accept anybody and everybody. And I think that's what we're seeing in the religious world today. It's all about me, what I want, and that puffs up my pride. And, hey, I feel good if I accept everybody. Uh, I'm just going to go along with it. Jesus isn't the only way. And you, and you know, to me, the most horrifying aspect of that is the the logical consequence. Now, uh, we often talk about the fact that there's a lot of people can't think logically these days. But the logical consequence of that view is that Jesus died for nothing. That his death was in vain and completely unnecessary. Yeah. Because if you could be saved as a Jew who doesn't even believe in Jesus, then certainly Jesus didn't have to die for you in order to do that. And so they, that, that, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say that I, I just think a lot of people in our day and time don't, don't think about if this is true and this is true, then if A is true and B is true, C has got to be true. You know, that's just a, a logical progression. A lot of people today can't do that, and and this is an illogical position for someone who calls themselves a Christian to take that position. Let us know your comments in the chat room. If it's Thursday night and we've been talking for more than 15 minutes, it's time to take a break. That's the logic I'm using. We need to get a break, and we'll get your thoughts on the other side. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back right after this. You won't want to miss what we talk about next. The discussion continues right after these important messages. Here's a quick thought. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Nahum 1 verse 7. Is the Lord your stronghold in times of adversity? Find your strength in him. Let him be your place of refuge and find peace. Seize the day. Here's some quotes worth pondering. The world is full of people who are making a good living, but living poor lives. Tailbearing emits a threefold poison, for it injures the teller, the hearer, and the person concerning whom the tale is told. He who throws dirt loses ground. Gossip always seems to travel fastest over grapevines that are slightly sour. A tongue three inches long can ruin a man six feet tall. Man, wish I'd said that. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. The virtual Bible study continues. And we're back on the program tonight talking about what has been labeled as the top five heresies among American evangelicals. Brian in California is breaking off a $5 word on me here. Society. Premature. Oh, boy. Society has reached the point where sincerity puts an imprimatur of validity and authenticity. Love makes everything okay. Truth is what sets us free. So if you're sincere and if you have a loving disposition, everything's okay. That's what, and, and, that, and Brian's exactly right. That's, that, that, that view has been sold on the religious world. Okay. And most people believe it. All right. Send me a bill for that word. That's that's fancy there, Brian. I like that. Okay. Right. Let's go to the second one of these heresies identified. Again, remember this survey. Top five heresies among American evangelicals in Christianity Today. A recent, a, a, a very recent edition of Christianity Today, by the way. 
number two, Jesus was created by God. A surprising 73% agreed with this statement, quote, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 73%. Three-fourths, effectively. That, that, that idea is not new. In fact, it, uh, according to, to what they, I, I don't know this history, that that was a big controversy in the early 4th century. And at, uh, I think probably most all of us have heard of the Council of Nicaea, and they produced the Nicene Creed. We've all heard of that. But one of the elements of the Nicene Creed was that Jesus was not made but eternally begotten. And the reason why that was included in the Nicene Council was because there was this heresy circulating around that Jesus was a created being. That's still around. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that. Yep. You know, I think lots of us have had occasion to study with Jehovah's Witnesses say what you will about Jehovah's Witnesses and their doctrines, they are at least, they are evangelistic. They're not evangelicals, but they are evangelistic. And they go door-to-door aggressively. uh, And and this is one of the positions they teach. So if you've ever talked to the Jehovah's Witnesses or studied with them, and I hope you have, then you would find that this is a part of their doctrines to this day. Again, Jacob, uh, as you were saying, I think you made a great observation you don't have to dig very deep in the Bible to destroy these apparently very popular notions. I, I would go to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, we're going to talk about the deity of Jesus in a minute. We're going to come back to that verse in a minute to talk about the deity of Jesus. But keep reading. The same, that is, the Word, was in the beginning with God, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. We've talked about this on the Virtual Bible Study before, Jacob. Think about that logically. We're trying to to appeal to people's logic. Logically, think about that statement. Without him was not anything made that was made. Well, that being the case, Jesus couldn't be a made thing. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it, it just, you just couldn't you couldn't squeeze that into that verse. If he was a created being, that statement is not true. Now, one of the fo- places that they're going to go is they look to say, well, Jesus was created where God it was three chapters over in the book of John to John chapter three, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. Well, there he is, the begotten of son of God. And they will see there he was created by God. Well, we have to harmonize the scriptures, and we have to, I mean, right there in one book, John's not going to contradict himself within a couple pages. We have to harmonize those two ideas. We can't take one and make it step all over the other. We've got to make them harmonize, yeah. and we can do that by understanding that Jesus was not created, that he is God, but that he has the relationship of a son to a father yeah. with, with the father. Like an, like an only begotten son. Yeah. It's a descriptive. It's not a... It's, it, it, It describes the relationship. It does not describe his origin. Otherwise, I can't make sense of John chapter 1 if I take it that he was a created being. Yeah. Another place that deals with this also, Jacob's Colossians 1. Colossians 1, beginning verse 13. God hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. In whom? In whom? In, In his son. We have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. 
and he is before all things and by him all things consist. Now, this is a passage that, that those who want to argue that Jesus was created being the Jehovah's Witness. And I've studied this with them on numerous occasions. It calls Jesus the firstborn of every creature. Mm-hmm. And so they would say he was the first thing created. He, he, he was created by God, but he's the very first thing that God created. He's the firstborn of every creature. Well, again, that can't be so because it says in the next verse that all things were created by him. So the expression firstborn is not talking about chronology of creation. It's not talking about order of creation. It's talking about, this is an expression of rank or pre, 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 preeminence. preeminence. Yeah, that's that's what verse 18 says. Yeah. If you keep reading one more verse, he is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. The firstborn was the preeminent in the Old Testament. Jesus is the preeminent today. He says here he's the firstborn from the dead. Well, he's not the first to raise from the dead. Yeah. We know others, that's uh, not true. Others were, I mean, Lazarus. Jesus himself raised Lazarus. Lazarus. But yeah. Jesus is the preeminent raised from the dead. He's yeah. the firstborn. The, the, the widow of Nain, he raised her yeah. uh, son. Uh, Jairus' daughter, he raised yeah. Jairus' daughter. So he wasn't literally, chronologically, the first one to ever raise from the dead, but he was the preeminent one. Yeah. And so that's what that expression means. But again, I think that you've got to take Colossians 1, verse 16. I mean, what? How, how else would you interpret this? All things were created by him. Well, if he's a created being, then that's not a true statement. Yeah. Right? Yeah. All right, here's what Kent says. He says, Christ was not created by God, John 1, 1 and 2. Those who attempt to argue that Christ is a created being misapply Colossians 1, 15 through 17. The text does not teach that Jesus Christ was the first of all created things. With regards to the person of Christ, the word pros, uh, proto, proto, tokos, prototokos I can't say it either. is used. The term is not used with relationship to Christ to being created. He is eternal just like the eternal Father, John 1, 1 and 2. The term is used denoting that of a privilege or rank rather than birth. Yeah. Paul uses this term describing Christ's relationship to creation. He's a co-creator. He exists bef- both above such and before such. Yeah. All right. So, uh, again, this it, for anybody who wants to do just a, 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 a very sh- a easy dive into scriptures, you can deny, you can prove that's wrong. But it is overwhelmingly believed by American evangelicals that Jesus was created by God. Seventy-three percent believe that. It sounds to me like we haven't read our Bibles very much, that we yeah. just have let me listen to the idea that Jesus is the Son of God. When you ask me, well, if he's the Son of God, he must be created. So, yeah, I'll agree to that. So 75%. Yeah. yeah. All, right. All right. So we've covered two, and and we agree. Those are heresies. Uh, I mean, those are false doctrines and very dangerous ones at that. Uh, Jesus isn't the only way to God, and Jesus was created by God. How about the next one? Jesus is not God. That's what. So, forty-three percent. Now, this is less than half, but still, forty-three percent is a pretty significant uh, percentage of American evangelicals believe that quote Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Now, we'll we'll introduce this. We may not get to talk this all the way through before our break, but we've pointed this out before, and I think it's really a great argument. You can't do that. You can't say that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Because if he was not God, then he was a liar. 
Mm-hmm. He was a deceiver. He wasn't a great teacher. He was a he was a charlatan. If he was not God, because he claimed to be God, we're, t- we're going to talk about that in a minute. C.S. Lewis constructed a, a logical argument. And again, it's kind of interesting in my mind that all this goes back to what's logical and what's not. C.S. Lewis said Jesus was either a liar or he was a lunatic. Maybe he, 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 maybe he wasn't just purposely lying. Maybe he was just flat out crazy. He said he was either a liar or he was a lunatic or he was the Lord. You've got to, you've got to take one of those positions. And if you believe that he's the Lord, then he, he is what he said he was and he is God. Uh, you know, that, I, I really think that it's important for us to be able to, uh, to make a defense of that sort of thing. Uh, and I dug out some old notes that I had on Jesus as the divine son of God. Uh, some things to note about that Jesus claimed to be God by virtue of his relationship with the Father. John five seventeen, Jesus answered, that, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Notice that the Jews understood that Jesus was claiming equality with God. So he claimed that unique relationship with God. He claimed to have the ability to forgive sins. I won't take time to read, but in Mark chapter 2, the first part of Mark chapter 2 is where the men, some men came and they couldn't get, they had a paralyzed friend. They couldn't get him to Jesus. They, they cut a hole in the roof and let him down to Jesus. Jesus healed the paralytic man. But, he, but his initial comment to the paralytic man was, thy sins be forgiven. And it caused an uproar. The people who were there said, who is this guy that he thinks he can forgive sins? And then, and then Jesus said, uh, whether it is easier uh, that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the sick of the palsy, I say to thee, arise, take up thy bed, go to thy house, uh, go thy way to thy house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all. So Jesus claimed the power to forgive sins. And the Jews said, only God can do that. Jesus didn't disagree. But he didn't back down from from saying that he was forgiving sin. Third point, he allowed himself to be worshipped. Now, I want want to call everybody's remembrance. Uh, For instance, in the book of Revelation, John tried to fall down and worship the angel who was revealing things to him, and the angel would not allow it. Verse 9 of Revelation 22, the angel said, worship God. We don't worship men. We We don't don't worship angels. We worship God. But Jesus allowed himself to be worshipped. John uh, John 9, beginning verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he found him, he said to him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe? And Jesus said, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believed, and he worshipped him. And God allowed that man, I believe that was a blind man that Jesus had healed, Jesus allowed that man to worship him. He didn't do what the angel in Revelation, Revelation said, Don't worship me. In, in the book of Acts, in, in one of the pagan cities, Paul and Barnabas, there was an attempt to worship them. They wouldn't allow it. Yeah. But Jesus allowed it. Yeah. He allowed this man to worship him again, which sh- certainly shows his claim to be deity. And then one more point before we take a break. Jesus explicitly said he was the son of God, that he was God at his trial before Pilate. 
Mark 14, beginning 61, Jesus held his peace and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, though this was before the high priest, not before Pilate. Again, the high priest asked him and said to him, Art thou Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the uh, right hand of the power, coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and said, What need we any further witness? Ye have heard the blasphemy. What think you? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. I don't think it was an accident that Jesus' response to the question, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? I don't think it was an accident that Jesus said, I am. There's a, there's a real biblical significance to the expression, I am. Uh, that's, that's what God told Moses at the burning bush. You know, when they say, who sent you, tell them, I am sent you. And that's, that's a, an expression of deity, a self-existent condition. Same thing that Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Yeah. That says he's eternal. Yeah. He's God. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's uh, blasphemy if he's not, to use that terminology. Yeah. So... And let's let's grab a break, Jacob. But when we come back, I want to just spend a minute, just a little bit more on this Jesus being God. What we what we've identified so far is that He certainly claimed to be, and allowed Himself to be honored as though He were God. What's the proof that He was God? He claimed it, but was He really? Let's talk about that when we come back. Nine three one three eight one four five six seven. Questions at collegeu.com in the chat room. We want to hear from you. Uh, don't go anywhere. We'll be back right after this week's bullet point. After these important messages, we'll be back to take your comments. Email them during this break. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. The simple question, why, can sometimes be the most exasperating question our children can ask. Having given them instructions and hoping for prompt obedience, it's so frustrating at times to be required to give a reason why. How often have we all answered, quote, because I said so? This response does not imply that we do not have a good reason for what we've told them to do. Sometimes this is our response because we do not feel an explanation is merited or would not be understood if given. And this is not to say that we should never state the reasoning behind our instructions to our children. As a general rule, we should. But still, at times, we expect them to be satisfied with a because I said so and get busy doing what we requested. Surely God, who is our Heavenly Father, must also be exasperated by the incessant questioning of religious folks today. So often they ask why to the clear, simple commands of Scripture. Baptism is essential for salvation. Why? Vocal music, singing, and worship, and no musical instruments. Why? The church is not to be involved in providing social and recreational activities for its members. Why? The Lord's Supper every week on the first day. Why? And on and on and on. Why? 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 Now, we're not suggesting that God does not have reasons for his commands, nor are we saying that the Bible does not deal with such reasons. There's a good bit of explanation for God's commands contained in the Word, but the point we're making here is that we ought to obey God whether we understand his reasons or not. As obedient children, we should do his will just because he said so. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Hello, I'm Nick Law from Jennings, Florida. I love to listen to the virtual Bible study and hear God's Word taught every Thursday night. Missed a recent virtual Bible study program? Listen to any of our past programs from the archive section of our website. Now, back to the virtual Bible study. Back on the program tonight. Remind you, this program is brought to you by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more at thevirtualbiblestudy.com or collegeview.com. And there's a few videos that you'll want to watch. Kyle, there's a few more than there were last time, this time last week. Yeah, yeah, a lot of good things on uh, our 
other YouTube channel, the College View Livestream. A lot of good studies. Uh, yeah, a lot of stuff to add to your Bible study. All right. And uh, in the chat window tonight, Brian says, I may be wrong, but the Gnostic couldn't believe, couldn't accept the claim that Jesus came in the flesh because they dismissed fleshliness for its inherent corruption. Perhaps the fallacy of original sin and Calvinists hinder those from accepting Jesus in the flesh and divine, being divine at all, all at the same time. I think that may be part of it, Brian. We want to talk about, you know, the idea that humans are sinful by nature. That's the last of these five heresies we want to talk about. But I think you might be onto something there, Brian. David says Melchizedek allowed Abraham to worship him. Does this mean that Melchizedek was God? You know, I'm not sure I agree with David about that. I'm looking in Genesis chapter 14. Uh, it says that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. And that's all it says about Melchizedek. That's the totality of information in Genesis about uh, Melchizedek. And I, I don't think, uh, David, I respectfully would have to disagree with you. I don't see in that that Melchizedek allowed Abram to worship him. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. And it says the same in Hebrews, that he blessed him in Hebrews. So, yeah, it doesn't say that he worshiped him. Yeah. Uh, Brian answers, he says, was <coughs> he accepting the worship unto himself or receiving it as an intermediary, high priest, on behalf of Jehovah? Good question, Brian says. Okay. Yeah. 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 How about, uh, give us a scripture reference, David. Yeah, we, we may be missing, may be missing we, something there, but I don't know. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. So I, I want to real quick, Jake, we were just saying Jesus claimed to be God. Let me real quick give reasons, proof that he was who he claimed. You know, you can claim anything. Oh, yeah. But what's the proof that his claim was true? Yep. First of all, his sinless life. Uh, no one was ever able to convict Jesus of committing sin. They, they, uh, uh, even on, at his trial, Mark 14, verse 55, the chief priest of all the council sought for witness against Jesus, put him to death and found none. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. So, you know, even when you, when you get liars to lie, they can't even... Agree their lies. They can't even get their lies to agree. Jesus had a sinless life. No one was ever able to show or convict him of sin. He performed miracles. uh, Lots of examples. Of course, others performed miracles, too. But 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 the miracles were to back up the fact that he claimed to be God. That's it. Exactly. Uh, John 20, verse 30. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And that believing he might have life through his name. So others did miracles, but Jesus did miracles specifically in reference to his claim to be the son of God. Back to the idea that he was forgiving sins. And they said, who can forgive sins but God? And then he said, well, to show you that I can, in other words, to show you that I'm God, here's the miracle. Take up your bed and walk. The miracle backed up the fact that he claimed to be God. Exactly. We could point to a third, a third proof of his deity is the the, the uh, fulfilled prophecies. We don't have time to go into all that, but things like his birth, uh, the place and manner of his birth, the, his lineage, descendant of Abraham and King David, uh, his suffering and sacrifice as prophesied in passages like Isaiah 53, all of fulfilled prophecy point to that he was who he claimed to be, the, the divine son of God. And then 
I think the ultimate proof of his deity is his resurrection. In fact, Paul said so in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. All right. So uh, I, I would argue that uh, Jesus is God. Not only did he claim to be God, but he provided evidence and proof that he is. And, and Kent has uh, responded to this question. He did not use any Greek words in this response, and so I've got this one covered. Okay. He says, Christ is God, John 1, 1 and 2. While it is true that Christ is not the Father, nonetheless, he partakes equal, equally of all the attributes of the Father, while a distinct person from the Father, Christ, equally partakes of the essence of deity, and therefore such makes him part of the Godhead. Exactly right, Kent. Exactly right. And, and John 1 in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Now, that's real plain. If you have any question in your mind who that's talking about when it talks about the Word and says the Word was God, verse 14, same chapter, John 1, verse 14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I mean, that's just as plain as it can be. How could modern evangelicals Deny that Jesus is God. Yeah. Crazy. Oh, yeah, but the music is good, Kyle. <laughs> the light show really gets, I get a feeling when I see that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. All right. Okay. This next one is a little, a little more technical, maybe a little harder to deal with. But notice, 60% of the survey, again, this is a survey by Lifeway Research published in uh, Christianity Today in a recent ep- very recent episode of Christianity Today. Sixty percent of American evangelicals believe that, quote, the Holy Spirit is a force, but is not a personal being. Now, that's that's that that's something that, again, that's more than half. That's 60 percent believe that. Uh, straight, straight out of the Jehovah's Witnesses playbook. Yeah, too. Yeah. But not only the Jehovah's Witnesses. I had some quotes here. Of course, again, this is an ancient heresy. This has been around for a long time, too. Uh, oh, where I had some quotes here, some, some extensive notes and quotes. Uh, where did I? Where did I have that? We'll start you in Acts chapter six. Go ahead. In Acts chapter six, we see that that the Holy Spirit was equated with God. As uh, Ananias and Sapphira get the wise idea that they're going to make up a story about how much they sold their property for. And um, it's actually Acts chapter 5. And uh, so they come and uh, they say, well, here's what we got from selling the land. And um, verse 2 of Acts chapter 5, and kept back part of the uh, price, his wife, Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, Sapphira, also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter said to Ananias, Why have Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it was remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Wait a minute, he just said he had lied to the Holy Ghost, but now he says he's lied to God. So, the Holy Ghost is God. One and the same. Yeah. But is he really a, a distinct being, or is he just a... a, a you know, here's here's the quotes I was looking for in some old notes I pulled up. Uh, the uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses teach, quote, the Holy Spirit is not a person. The Holy Spirit is not a part of the Trinity. It's a the power. Holy Spirit is God's active force. Mm-hmm. 
they uh, in another of their publication it says uh, the Holy Spirit is a controlled force emanating from Jehovah God that he uses to accomplish a variety of things relative to his purposes. To a certain extent, it can be likened unto electricity, mm-hmm. yeah. a force that can perform a great variety of operations. Mary Baker Eddy, founder of the Christian Science Movement, said the Holy Spirit is not a distinct person, but merely is divine science. Oh, uh, Parley Pratt, one of the original apostles of the Mormon church, likened the Holy Spirit unto electricity, galvanism, and magnetism. Yeah, all blasphemous, by the way. Yeah. So this is an idea that's been around, uh, and again, unfortunately, is popularly believed by a lot of people that the Holy Spirit is not a distinct being. Let's grab our last break, Jacob, and when we come back, let's look to some some proofs that the Holy Spirit is a divine being unique and distinct from the Father and the Son. Yeah, but we can't spend too much time because we've got to get to the fifth supposed heresy, which actually isn't a heresy at all. Don't go anywhere. We're back right after this. Now you can listen to a podcast of a recent sermon every week. Find out more at collegeview.com. There's more of the virtual Bible study right after these important messages. I'm Dan Quillen, a member of the College View Church of Christ, with some thoughts about making plans. Have you made any different plans for your spiritual life and for your service for God. We spend time prioritizing personal lives and setting goals in our careers, but do we think in those terms about the most important thing, our soul? Ask yourself these questions. What am I planning to do for God today? In the coming week, what good thoughts will I accomplish for him? At this time next year, where do I want to be in my spiritual life? In five years from now, how will I have changed, improved, and grown in my work for God? Ten years from today... How will my family be? How will I have helped them grow spiritually? 20 years down the road, how will I be doing? As I approach death, what will have been the most important things in my life? Where will I be in eternity? We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. A survey of the youngest generations who identify as committed Christians shows that most do not attend church services even once monthly. Among those ages 18 through 57 who claim that their personal commitment to Christ is still important in their life, less than one-third attend church services at least once a month. That information is via the Baptist Press. The Word of God says in Luke 6, verse 46, And why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Broadcasting around the world with truths that are out of this world. The virtual Bible study. Take it away, guys. And we're back going to the top of the hour looking at five supposed heresies among American evangelicals. Okay, now you already, you already, I think, gave the definitive proof that the Holy Spirit is God right. from Acts chapter 6. I mean, that just nails it. But what is, is he a distinct being? separate from father and son a third person who possesses the attributes of deity we say yes the dictionary defines a person as quote a being characterized by conscious apprehension rationality and moral sense and that's true of the holy spirit so here's some quick proofs jesus referred to the holy spirit as he john 14 verse 26 The Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have uh, said unto you. Uh, I don't talk about electricity as a he or magnetism as a he. Yeah. It's maybe even more emphatic in John 16, verse 13. Jesus said, How be it when he, 
the spirit of truth has come. He will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. <laughs> Pretty, a lot of the, the third person pronouns there, he, mm-hmm. not, not it, mm-hmm. but he. Uh, I remember once, just as a little side story, one time, one of the first times I made an effort to preach a sermon, uh, I referred to the Holy Spirit, and I referred to the Holy Spirit as it. And one of the good brothers, a really good guy, I, I really loved him, he came to me later and said, Holy Spirit's not it. The Holy Spirit is he. And I never made that mistake again. Yeah. Our language can open the door for yeah. false ideas to get started there. Yeah. Uh, so the Holy Spirit possesses will. Or I'm, I'm just going to, and we don't, we don't have time to read all these verses, but I'm just going to kind of do a quick reference here. Holy Spirit has the characteristics of a person. He possesses will or desire, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 11. He makes judgments, Acts 15, verse 28. He searches, 1 Corinthians 2, 11. He teaches, 1 Corinthians 2, 13. He speaks, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. He testifies, John 15, verse 26. He leads, Romans 8, verse 14. He forbids, Acts 16, verse 6 and 7. He convicts, Hebrews 10, verse 29. He hears, John 16, verse 13. He intercedes, Romans 8, verses 26 and 27. Not just a mysterious force there with all those actions. He can be grieved, Ephesians 4, verse 30. He can be insulted, Hebrews 10, verses 28 29. He can be resisted, Acts 7, verse 51. He can be spoken against, Matthew 12, verse 32. He can be lied to, Acts 5, uh, verses 3 and 4. All right. So all of those are reasons why we would say that the Holy Spirit is certainly a distinct being. He is a separate being from Father and Son, but he possesses all the attributes of deity. He is God in the sense that he possesses the attributes of deity, but he's a separate uh, identity from the Father and the Son. And uh, Kent says the Holy Spirit is a personal being, John 16, verse 13, that you referenced. He is identified as being a divine person within the Godhead, being co-equal with the Father and the Son. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Acts 5, 3, and 4. We reference Acts 5, 3, and 4. I like Matthew 28, uh, 18 through 20, you know, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're, that's all, they're all presented equal there. Yeah. Right? It's not just baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and this active force of God. Uh, there's so many arguments here that we could go to. The baptism of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Jesus is in the water being baptized by John the yeah. Baptist. The Father speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Spirit descends as a dove. All three beings of the Godhead are distinctly identified in that one episode yep all right we got to go quickly here jacob all right so the the first four we agree are heresies jesus isn't the only way to god jesus was created by god jesus is not god the holy spirit is not a personal being we would agree that all the four of those positions is a is heretical and it's just as you said earlier jacob it's just shocking and surprising that people hold those positions which are so easily answered by a, a simple reference to scripture yep all right now the fifth one so all of this comes from an article in christianity today the fifth one is different from the rest so they say the the authors of this article and of this survey say that this is a heresy 57 percent of american evangelicals agreed to this statement quote everyone sins a little but most people are good by nature. 
In other words, humans might be capable of committing individual sins, but we do not have sinful natures. So they say it's a heresy to claim that humans don't have a sinful nature. Uh, And so I guess what I would say, Jacob, if that's heresy, then we're guilty uh, because we believe that people do not have a sinful nature either. Uh, let, Let me you're looking up something there. Let me read what Kent says about this real quick. He says, it is true that humans are not sinful by nature. Accountable humanity are sinners by personal choice rather than by birth. Ezekiel 18, verse 20. Individuals are sinners because of what they have personally done, not because they have been procreated as sinners. Romans 3.23, Revelation 20, verse 12. I think you're exactly right on that, Kent. Uh, I, I wanted to go to a passage in Ezekiel to show that people are not born depraved. They were not born with a sinful nature. We, we are sinners because we choose to sin. Ezekiel 28, verse 15 Ezekiel 28, verse 15 says, Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. So notice, perfect when thou wast created until iniquity was found in thee. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29 is similar. This only I have found that God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. In Matthew 18, Jesus, speaking of little children, Matthew 18, verse 3, Verily I say to you, except you, become, except you be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We have to be, if, if, if children are inherently evil, sinful creatures, why would Jesus say we have to be converted and become as they are? Uh, that that doesn't make sense. It, it doesn't work. Uh, Matthew 19, verse 14, Jesus said, Suffer, little children, forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. How about the definition of sin? The definition of sin uh, shows that it is not something that can be given or passed along. I can't give you sin, Kyle, because sin, First John chapter 3, verse 4 Sin is the transgression of the law. Whosoever committeth sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. It is not something that I can be given. It is something that I have to do or commit, because sin is a transgression of the law. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. And and, and that's that's one of the great uh, errors of Calvinism, is that it teaches that men are born with this sinful nature, and if that's the case, then then we, we've got God at fault rather than man for sin, and and that and there's a whole lot of ramifications of that. But that that puts God in in, in the uh, the accountable role for men being sinners. Uh, sin is a choice. Sin is not an inherited condition. And it's all connected with that doctrine of Calvinism that gets into just a big ball of wax, stepping all over all kinds of scriptures. When you take that idea that men are completely depraved, completely sinful, can't do anything, then you get into yourself into all kinds of issues where you're contradicting the scriptures. 
Kyle, last night we were studying we're studying uh, Old Testament Bible characters. Last night's study was about King David, and we talked at some length about his sin with Bathsheba. You know, such a sad part of David's legacy is his sin with Bathsheba, and we know that one of the consequences of the sin was that 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 Nathan the prophet said the child thus conceived in this adulterous relationship would die. And and the child did die, but David had had fasted and prayed and and beseeched God on behalf of the child. He wouldn't eat, uh, but when the child died, uh, it, it says David rose from the earth, washed, anointed himself, changed his apparel, came to the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. Then said his servants unto him. What thing is this that thou hast done? That is fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat. And David said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So David believed in the eternal well-being of this child who died just days old uh, yeah. yep, and, yep. and had confidence that he, he was secure. True. We'll get into the doctrine of limbo in the Catholic Church because this idea of inherited sin, that they don't want to think that their, their infant died without being baptized, which is an oxymoron as well. You could be baptized as an infant, but that that infant would be in hell, so now they're just in limbo, uh, which you cannot read about anywhere in the Bible. Just, you know, I think a lot of people hold to some elements of the doctrines of Calvinism and don't really understand the the impact of it all. But here's here's Calvinism taken to its literal uh, extent. Edward T. Hitchcock in the Standard Manual for Baptist Churches said, quote, being by nature utterly void of that holiness required by the law of God, positively inclined to evil and therefore under just condemnation without defense or excuse. And that gets into the idea, now Now I cannot be taught the gospel and accept it unless God somehow does miraculous things to my heart. Yeah, exactly right. Um, and so, yeah, it, start, it opens the door for all kinds of problems. Exactly right. All right. Did we get Kent's last comment there? We did. Okay. Yep. All right. And Thanks, uh, we got Kent. to the Kent, end of the list. Kent, you were our only correspondent by email tonight. We did have several in the chat room, but yeah. Kent was the only one who, he's our faithful correspondent from Calhoun, Georgia. Yeah, glad to hear from Kent tonight. Glad to hear from all our listeners and glad that you joined us on the program tonight. Kyle, thanks for getting it out there for us. Yeah, I mean, it was a good study. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, very interesting. Dad, uh, glad, that, uh, glad that Randy supplied us with that list. Yeah, thanks to Randy, our, our friend Randy Black in, in Colorado, for sending us the link to that survey. All right. Thank you for your time tonight, Dad. Thanks, Jacob. Thank you for being here. Hope you benefited from our study and discussion of God's Word. Hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word, the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, 
College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.